5, 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 15. And do you guys hear a buzz before I do that? All right, excellent. Somebody's trying to turn the baptismal off. Would you help them maybe? Because I, I think they're having struggles. It's a breaker and I don't think they know that. So um, it's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 15. Let's, let's read God's holy inspired word for us today. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. What a great moment to be at peace, right? Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't leave us alone to try to figure out how we're supposed to live in a way that honors you in response to you making us alive. God, you don't leave us alone. You give us practical instruction. Lord, I pray this morning that as we hear your words, your practical words of instruction about how to live in the church family, Lord, I pray that you would help encourage us, Lord. That you would, Lord, bring the gift of conviction, Lord. That you would bring response in our hearts, Lord. And I pray this, Lord, that you would bring the fruit of peace in the church as well. We pray all of these things, trusting in you, looking to you, and asking for an increased filling of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I grew up in a good family. We tried to love each other. My, my parents, though, they, they didn't really know how to live the Christian life. They didn't have good examples. Both of my parents were born in broken homes. My, my mom was born to an alcoholic father who died when she was a teenager. My, my father was born into a broken home where his father and mother separated, and he was shipped around from place to place. He didn't really have a good example of what, what it looked like to be a part of the family. Neither one of them experienced healthy families, healthy family relationships, Neither one of them had ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ until they'd been married for 11 years. And 11 years of marriage without the gospel would not make for a good foundation. And yet God broke through and they heard the gospel. They repented, they believed. And there was a dramatic change in the family. But, but we, we didn't really know what it looked like to be at peace. And there wasn't always peace in the home. We loved each other, but we didn't have good instructions. My parents didn't have good instructions. Unfortunately, they weren't discipled in a church. Uh, my, my father didn't have good instruction and teaching about what does it look like to, to cultivate a peaceful Christian home. And I don't say these things as, as, as negative, but, but it would have been so good if they had been able to be a part of a healthy local church where they were discipled and cared for and admonished at times corrected, brought under the faith, encouraged, helped, cared for. And, and, and I think it would have made a major difference in, in the home, in, in my home, as I, when I grew up, and, and, and the, the, the culture it created in the home. And I think it would have cultivated a culture of peace. And, and maybe many of you have grown up in homes that are like that, and so you are not familiar with what it looks like to have a peaceful home. Maybe your home currently isn't peaceful. God doesn't intend for it to be that way. He intends for the gospel actually to affect every aspect of our lives, including our own personal homes and, and including our church home. 
And God's called us part of the aspect of, of being made new, made alive in Jesus Christ, is that he's actually brought us into a brand new home, a brand new family. We've been made brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this brand new church. They're, they're new believers. And he wants them really to understand that because we're a part of God's family, we, we all have responsibilities to be at peace among our church family. That's, that's what the, the gist of these four little verses are. They're really powerful verses, but you need to skip over them. But he wants us to see that, that because we're a part of God's family, we all have responsibilities, just like any normal earthly family has responsibilities. And so because we're a part of a God's family, and that's the main point, you can go back to that one for a second if you don't mind. Because we're part of God's family, we all have responsibilities to be at peace among our church family. That's the main idea that the Apostle Paul wants us to see. Now, you might be wondering, where in the world am I getting that from these four verses? That where does it talk about a family? Where does it talk about responsibilities? And you might see peace there, but we're going we're to go through it. And you know, whenever you're reading uh, the Bible, you want to look at the structure as well, because God actually is sovereign in all the aspects of how he writes his word. And, and often we find the emphasis of a passage is revealed as we look at the structure of the passage, And and there's two terms here, both in verse 12 and in verse 14. The two categories of people uh, that we relate to in the church. And and in verse 12, you see that he says, we ask you, brothers, in verse 12. And then he says again in verse 14, we ask you, we urge you, brothers, so it's even more urgent. We we ask you, brothers, we urge you, brothers. But the, the problem is in the ESV, you might have a little footnote in your Bible. I don't know if you have footnotes in your Bibles or not, or if you have the ESV, the NIV, but... In their Bibles, it says, brothers, a little footnote down at the bottom there, it's reflecting the fact that this is a Greek word that doesn't just mean brothers, it's not about men only. This, this word, it's a word that's used 14 times in this little letter, this little five-chapter letter, this word is used 14 times, and it and it's actually means brethren or family members, brothers and sisters, Because the idea that Paul wants us to see is that our relationships flow out of our relationship with God. And because of our relationship with God, he's actually made us a part of the church family. So we are a gospel family in the church. And that's where this relating flows from. It flows from a foundation of the fact that we are a gospel family in the church. And he uses that term so many times throughout the letter. At the very beginning of the, of the letter, he told him in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, For we know brothers chosen by God. And again, that's brothers and sisters, brethren, family members, we know, chosen by God. In chapter 2, 1, he says, you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, our coming wasn't in vain because there's something had been done in their lives, had been made alive. And then he calls them back to remember in, in, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. And then in, in verse two fourteen, he says, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God. And then he, he talks about how they were torn away in, in verse 217. He says, we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time. And we wanted to get back to you because we're a family and we got ripped away from you. And leaving family is hard. And then in verse 37, he says, for this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, will be comforted about you through your faith. There is a comfort from knowing that your family is a part of the faith. And then he urged them in, in Four one, he says, finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and we urge you in Lord Jesus Christ, just as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you're doing, you do so more and more. And then really from that, ever since one, he's been talking about what does it look like to live in family relationships? What does it look like to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
And throughout the New Testament, the church is always referred to, constantly referred to as a family. That might be a struggle if you've had a bad upbringing, but he's adopted us as sons and daughters of God. And God's a perfect father. And then he brings us into the family so that we actually receive the same inheritance as Jesus Christ. And they call Jesus Christ the firstborn among many, many brothers. And we've been made a part of this gospel family. And, and, and that's where all of these relationships flow out of. And he's entreating them as, as brothers and sisters. He's, he's not urging or asking them as an apostle, but he's appealing to them on the basis of the fact that they're part of a gospel family. And that's meant to have implications for how they live. The mutual relationship is meant to affect their mutual behavior. But like any new family, and like when I was, my family was new and I got great instruction and teaching from various older brothers and sisters in Christ, great help. I remember when one of our children was really struggling with anger, somebody came along and said, hey, do you know your, your kid's really angry? Like we, we kind of, we saw that, but we are clueless. We don't know what to do. And, and they helped us set some boundaries and, and set clear expectations. And so we, we, we needed that admonishment and encouragement and instruction. And like any new family, we need to know, what, what in the world does it look like to be a part of this new family that we've been made a part of, God's family? What does it look like? What's expected? How do we live together as a family? So Paul here, he's giving the instructions to them. And, and really what he's saying is he wants us to be at peace as a family. Be at peace among yourselves as a family. Look down at your Bibles. At the end of verse 13, in between these two sets of instructions, this is where structure helps us. This, this first set of instructions is about how does a family relate to leaders? How does the church family relate to its leaders? And that's really in, in 12, in the first part of 13. And then you have this little thing in the middle, be at peace among yourselves. And then the rest of the passages, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, here's how you relate to each other in the church family. And sandwiched in between those two, two encouragements, one is how do we relate to leaders in the church family? How do we relate to each other in the church family? In the middle, it says, be at peace among yourselves. And I think that's revealing of, of where the structure is pointing, is pointing to the fact that that is how we can be at peace. This is how we pursue being at peace among ourselves as a church family. You can be at peace when the body of Christ is relating properly. You know, just like in, the, in our own families, when, when people are relating improperly in ways that are not okay, it creates chaos, it creates discord, disunity, division. All of us have seen that, not only in our own homes, but in the church as well. And Paul says, I, I don't want you to live like that. I want you to live at peace among yourselves. I like what G.K. Beale says. He says, peace will result when love increases among those in the church. And then he says, especially between the shepherds and the congregational flock. On the other hand, animosity grows when dissension festers. If you're wondering, how do we have peace in the church? This is what the Apostle Paul is writing to us. You have peace in the church by how we relate to our leaders. And we have peace in the church by how we relate to one another amongst us. You know, and, and, and in saying that, I, I am so glad that God has given us peace in our church. Um, this is going to sound crazy, but during COVID, we, we lost a, a very large percent of our, of our church left because of disagreements over secondary non-gospel issues. A good portion of our church departed over preference issues choice questions of should I wear a mask, not wear a mask? We've all went through that. It's kind of PTSD when you even hear the word COVID anymore, right? At least I do. I'm like, I don't want to hear about that anymore. Um, but 
it was revealing of the fact that things that were not meant to divide the church had become primary issues for many, and they weren't gospel issues. And Paul says, no, I, don't, I want you to live like that. I want you don't want you to, I want you to have peace amongst the church. And so this is good instruction for us. And I'm grateful that as a church, God brought us through that. And there really is peace in our church. Um, I was away this past week at a conference for other pastoral care pastors. I helped care for, uh, oversee a team that cares for about 100 churches in the southeast for X-29. And, and I'm really grateful that when I went there, they were like, how are things going? I'm like, I am really excited. I'm excited about our church because it's a, it's a peace-filled church. It's a church that loves one another and that I feel like this is a a supportive, kind, and encouraging church as well. And so it's so good to be able to say that. I'm glad God has given us peace. And often he does that by revealing things that are not primary gospel issues and then at times removing. That's a blessing from God. And and people are like, was that hard? I'm like, actually, I'm I'm really grateful that God brought people to the church who are here for the right reasons and want to be here because they're centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives us a couple different ways that we can pursue peace, because this doesn't come automatically. Um, If you are in a relationship with someone else, if you've ever been in a relationship with someone else, if you have children, if you have parents, if you have siblings, if you have coworkers, you know that peace doesn't come automatically, right? It's gotta be pursued. And so he tells these two ways that we pursue peace in the church family. Peace in the church family comes through how we relate to our family leaders. That's, that's the first thing he shows us in, in verses 12 and 13, that peace in the family comes through how we relate to our family leaders. Peace isn't automatic. It has to be cultivated. It has to be valued and pursued. And so Paul talks about the fact that there is a relationship, and he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't skirt it. He doesn't avoid it because it's awkward. Um, I'm not going to avoid this passage because it's really awkward for me to preach about how to relate to leaders because I believe this is God's word and that's how God actually brings peace because God does establish a good order in the church. Um, All members of the church are created equally. All members have been gifted by God with various gifts. But different members have different responsibilities. And so Paul here is talking about those who have the responsibility to lead and how those in the church who have responsibility to be church members and have other gifting, how they're supposed to relate to each other. And he tells us really clearly, and he says, respect those who labor among you. He gives three categories for the kind of people that we're to respect, the kind of leaders that we're to respect. And he says, respect those who labor among you. And it's important to see that, that leaders are not to be outside of the body of Christ. They're not to be other than. They're not to be distant from. Leaders are called to labor among the church. And that doesn't just include me and Aaron. It includes your deacons here, your church leaders. And by the way, in case you're wondering, I did not prep them. I'm gonna do this. Um, It might bother you. Sorry, leaders. Um, I'm gonna ask everyone who is a leader in the church, if you just go ahead and stand up, please. If you're a deacon in the church, if you come to our leaders' meetings, go ahead and stand up. You won't like it. You're gonna be uncomfortable. Do it anyway. This is where you can respect me. Go ahead and stand up. Excellent. I I don't see the ladies who are leaders standing up. Um, Can you stand up too, please? Can you do that? Um, Excellent, thank you very much. You can sit down now, I won't won't bother you. Um, Suzanne, you should have stood up too, by the way. So um, (laughs) she was looking around like, when am I supposed to stand up? Yes, that includes you. Respect those who labor among you. The call to leadership is a call to labor. And that word for labor, it means toil. It means hard work. 
Um, the, the idea of leaders just sitting back and letting other people serve them is not a Christian idea. You see, Jesus himself set the example in how he has led us and leads us. He led by giving of himself, by serving, by laying down his life. And that's what he calls leaders in the church to do as well. He doesn't call leaders in the church to be, be um, domineering, even though he says those who are over you in the Lord were to be among, laboring, or fellow members of the body of Christ. Leaders are fellow members of the body of Christ. And so Paul says, respect that it is hard work. Respect that they have been given for the good of the body of Christ. And then he also doesn't shy with him, the fact that, that there is an authority given by God because all of us are under authority. Even Jesus, when he came to this earth, he says, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And likewise, he commissions his disciples as apostles and he commands his apostles, he commanded Paul to, to go and appoint pastors. Paul commands Timothy to go and appoint elders in every church. We all live under the authority of another and it's good to be under the authority of the Lord. He says, those who are over you, but it's not just over you in any kind of generic way. The leaders in the church are not called to, to micromanage your life, to tell you what to do, what not to do, but they are called to give an account for, to care for, to shepherd, to care for the church. And they've been given responsibility to do that by what he says in, in, in verse 12, 13, he says, and admonish you. Leaders are called to admonish. Now that word, it doesn't sound really good to us because that word, it means warn, it means teach, exhort. And that's what leaders are called to do. And thank God for that because I can think of many times in my own life when I've been admonished, when I've been warned to say, hey, you know what you're doing? Is, it's not godly. The way you're living is not good. How you're relating, it needs to change. And that's how God helps us all grow. And he says, he wants you to respect those who labor among you, who are over you and admonish you. He wants you to pay attention to this, this kind of instruction that's about ethical living, how to live in response to the gospel's transforming effect in our lives. It can imply this big brother kind of tone. And that can be jarring, but, but at the same time, it's never meant to justify harshness or unkindness. When it comes to leaders, though, the church has made all kinds of mistakes, right? The church has made, and then if you think about in church history, the church has made mistakes of either fawning over and being overly subservient to leaders in a way that's really unhealthy and acting like only leaders are called to minister, when in reality the fact is that every member is called to be ministers of the gospel. So there's one extreme of, of putting leaders on pedestals, which is unhelpful, and they can lead people to, to worship people, and then so when that person falls or fails, they can reject the faith. We're never meant to do that. On the other hand, uh, people can say, well, all the abuse in the church and all the, the, the misuse of authority in the church, I don't want anything to do with leadership at all. And so people would say, we don't need leaders because we're all ministers, so we don't need leaders. They're redundant. We're all just going to be live our own lives in our own way in the church and and get rid of our leaders, that Paul won't allow that. And so he says, I want you to esteem them very highly in love. It's not because they're worthy of esteem themselves, but, but because of their work is what he says, because of their work, because of what God has called them to do in, in admonishing and being over and leading and laboring. 
And so we, we want to esteem that because we need the labor of our leaders. We need that. And I'm grateful that we have so many leaders in the church, that I'm not alone, that Aaron's not alone, that it's not just the two of us. I'm grateful for the leadership of the church, and I'm, I'm grateful that they labor, and they labor in the church, among the church. And I'm, I'm grateful that, that they admonish, that they warn, that they teach, that they correct. And I'm grateful that they, they lead. And so we, we can esteem our leaders highly because of their work, because we need that. And then the second way that, that Paul writes that we live out our relationship as fellow believers in the church, as family members of the church, he says, he says be at peace with, with the church family through how we relate to each other and everyone else. But primarily starts in the church. How do we relate to each other? We be at peace through how we relate to each other. And then he talks about three different ways, well, well four different ways really, that we relate to each other. He says, I want you to admonish the idol or those out of step. I want you to... Uh, encourage those who are faint-hearted. I want you to help the weak. And then rubric that kind of informs all that, he says, and for all of those people, be patient with you all. What is he saying? He's saying that the idea of admonishment is not only that of your leaders, all of us to admonish. The idea of encouragement is not only something given to your church leaders, all of us are to encourage. And the, the idea of helping or coming alongside or lifting up, it's not just for your church leaders. This is for each and every one of us. This is how we can be at peace in God's family. To be a church family means we are for each other. When things are difficult and the ups and the downs, to the good times, to the bad times. Loving Jesus and being committed to him is a commitment not only to Christ, but it's a commitment to his family. If you used the illustration before, can you imagine that you become friends with somebody and then you go and you are together as couples and you say, you know, I really like you, but I hate your spouse. I don't think that relationship would go very well. But yet sometimes people treat the, the body of Christ, the church family that way. They say, Jesus, I love you. I just don't like these people here. And we're all tempted that way, if you're honest. Because you know what? We're, we're a family. Like any family, families are messy sometimes. Because we all have remaining indwelling sin, we're going to offend each other. I'm not just excusing that, but here's what I want to set expectations for. You're going to offend each other. You're going to step on each other's toes. You're going to read each other wrong. Miscommunication is going to happen. And Paul wants to understand, in a church family, we have to pursue peace. It's something that has to actively be pursued. And it's pursued through three different ways that he details here. And then under the banner of patience. And he's helping them supply what was lacking in their faith. What was lacking in their faith was how they practically lived their faith out. And so he says, I want you to admonish the idol. That's the first command that he gives to, to how do we relate to each other. Now, when it, the word idol, it, it could mean people who are lazy or not working, but that word actually, the, the original language, it means somebody who's out of step, somebody who's unruly. Somebody who's out of step with the Christian life, somebody who's undisciplined. It's, it's the image of a soldier who is marching along with the other soldiers and he's not paying attention and he's out of step with them. The, the Greeks actually use it for somebody who showed up, didn't show up for their appointed shift at work. You know, sometimes it's easy to get frustrated with people who are out of step and just ignore them. You ever do that? You ever have somebody who's just, they're just disorderly in, in, in their lives. They're not honoring God. They're not following Jesus. They're not in step, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. They're not keeping in step with Jesus, not following him. And it's easier just to dismiss them and ignore them because it's hard 
to admonish, to warn, to come alongside somebody and say, hey, this walk, you're out of step with Christ. This walk, you're out of step with what following Jesus is supposed to look like. Because we think, you know what, I, who am I to say anything? When, and, and we do that all on, only under the authority of God's word. But loving each other like a family makes, means taking the time to say, uh, you're, you're kind of going in a different direction here, brother, sister. And, and, and let me admonish you. Let, it's not about correcting people for taking downtime, for having a vacation. This is not about that, but this is about a lifestyle overall of, of not keeping in step with the Spirit, keeping in step with God's Word, keeping in step with what it means to be a Christian. Now, this isn't about preferences either, though. This is about keeping in step with following Jesus. You know, God, God put us into this world to to be a part of him redeeming all things. And so if we're not in step with him, we're not gonna be, we're not gonna be seeking to glorify him in all that we do. We're not gonna be seeking to honor him in all that we do. And so we need to be admonished. So it's warning, it's teaching, it's exhorting. And then we're also encouraged to encourage the faint-hearted. And you think about who are the faint-hearted? Well, it can be any, any one of us, right? Anybody here ever been faint-hearted before? Now, it'd be silly if you were told to admonish the faint-hearted. What would, what would that result in? Any ideas? What would that result in? Frustration, even worse, sadness, discouragement, harm. And so, so we have to be careful in how we relate to each other. We have to relate to each other based on what we need. So that means that we're active members of the family, that we're observing. How are people doing? Are they okay? Are they, do they need help or do they need admonishment? Or do they just need to be encouraged right now? Or on, on the flip side, if you encourage somebody who's not keeping a step of the spirit and like, that's okay, brother, you're doing fine, that's gonna be unhelpful. It's gonna be misleading. And so he says, I want you to admonish the unruly I want you to encourage the faint-hearted. To be faint-hearted means to, to lack courage. It could imply somebody who's fearful. Maybe they're fearful about their own salvation. Maybe they lack boldness to take a step of faith that God's calling them to. Maybe they're, they're timid in their life, their relationships, or about a job. It could mean those who are just disheartened. I, I am positive in, a, in any given church, there are many who are tempted to be faint-hearted, to, to give up. I can't do this. He says, no matter the cause, we're called to encourage those who are faint-hearted. And whether or not you're faint-hearted now, all of us will be from time to time. And so how do, we, how do we relate to each other? How do we bring peace? We bring peace by admonishing, by encouraging the faint-hearted. And then he says, helping the weak. And, and I have a picture for you of, of what it looks like when this, this word for helping the weak, it, 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 that word really means kind of coming alongside, putting your shoulder underneath, putting your arm around somebody, holding them up, holding on to is the literal translation, holding on to the weak. And I remember when I was a kid, I saw all these Vietnam movies and in these Vietnam movies, I always thought it was amazing how someone would pick up a wounded soldier, they would pick them up, and they would kind of carry them, and there's one picture on the lower right. He's, he's not even touching the ground. He's just got him around his shoulder, and he's carrying them. He's helping him because he's too weak. And that's the same kind of idea here. You can put the picture down so it's not too distracting, but that's the same kind of idea here that we're called to in the church. When, when somebody is weak, either physically or spiritually, mentally, emotionally, relationally, we're to help them. It means putting your arm around side of them, coming along them, not, not correcting them, 
It doesn't say correct the weak. But you know what? It's easy to do that, isn't it? It's, it's easy to become self-righteous in how we relate to each other. But he says, no, I want you to hold on to them. This, this putting the arm around somebody who's weak at the moment. Because Jesus, in our weakness, came to us. While we were too weak to rescue ourselves, Christ came for us. And sometimes people can be faint-hearted because they're weak. And then the third thing that he calls us to do in, in, in being, being, peace, being at peace amongst ourselves is not just to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And he says, be patient with them all. That's really hard. This is where those commands get hard. Because you're like, I can help the weak, but only to a certain extent. I can help somebody who's unruly, but only the first or second correction after that, or, or I help them, after that, I'm, I'm going to get fed up with them because it's really hard and annoying because they keep doing the same thing. And maybe they keep doing the same thing 70 times 7. And it's hard to admonish the, the unruly, encouraging, the faint-hearted, and helping the weak. It requires patience. And that word for patience is the same word that's used for long-suffering. Now, nobody likes that word, long-suffering. I don't like suffering, much less long-suffering with other people. He says, but be patient with them all. And now, sometimes you have to think about, why am I impatient? Sometimes it's because we feel like our time is more valuable than them. Because we feel like our needs, our desires, our wants are more important than them. And, and, and Jesus helps us in those moments. He says that, that he, is, he has humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, I want you to have the same kind of mindset in relating to each other. The same mindset that Jesus had who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. And think about how you need patience. Anybody here ever needed patience in, with, with God, from God? You know, we can be self-righteous at times with those who are faint-hearted or unruly or weak. We can think, well, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't be like that. So I can't believe that they're like that. Have you seen that person, how unruly they are? Have you seen just that person's continually faint-hearted and it's such a drag? It, that person's always weak and, and they, there's no excuse for that because they have God's word. Why, don't, why aren't they just strong? And, and we can become self-righteous and that's why we can be impatient. And Paul says, no, don't, don't, don't relate to each other in church family like that. I want you to be patient with them all. The reality is if there's any area where You've been diligent. If there's any area where you're not weak, if there's any area where you are encouraged and doing well, it's because of the grace of God in your life. We, Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? You strong? Oh, you've received that from God. Are you encouraged? You've received that from God. Are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Oh, that's because he has enabled you to keep in step with him. And so if there's any area where we are faith-filled instead of timid. It's a gift of the grace of God. If there's any area we're strong and not weak, it's a gift of the grace of God. And it might seem impossible to be patient, but we can do this as we're filled with the Holy Spirit because we've been chosen by God. We've been made a member of his family. So we have all the strength that God supplies to us. 
It might seem impossible, but, but it comes as we meditate on, on really our own lives, how much we need God's patience each and every day. It comes as we remember the patience and the love of God towards us, and then we can extend that patience and the love of God as we meditate on and receive God's love and patience for us, and, it, and then we can extend that to others. And then he says something else that's related to this, to related to being at peace, related to helping the weak, being patient. He says, see to that no one repays anyone evil for evil. You might think this is unrelated, but, but the fact is, is when somebody is unkind to you or unruly, our temptation, yes, we are Christians, but our temptation, even the church, is, is to treat them in like kind. You know, not allowing anybody, says, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. And this is a whole range of experiences from being offended by somebody else and being tempted to hold a grudge. Now, I can think of many times in my life where I've been offended by people and I'm tempted to hold a grudge. That's repaying evil for evil. By treating people differently in a negative way when they're weak, when they're unruly, when, they've, when they're not peaceful. You know, we can be tempted to cut people off to, to look to get back at the other person. Well, they didn't do this for me, so I'm not going to do that for them. They weren't kind to me. They didn't greet me. They didn't, whatever your expectations are. He says, no, don't, don't let anybody repay evil for evil. You ever held a grudge against somebody when they've offended you? You ever tried to help somebody else and they were mean and they rejected you, and you lashed out in response, or maybe you give them the cold shoulder. He says, don't repay anybody evil for evil. You know, we're tempted to ignore people who mistreat us. You ever been tempted to gossip or slander when somebody's wronged you? That's repaying evil for evil. And I can confess, I've been guilty of all these things in the past. But the Christian faith is an actively lived out faith where we're, we're seeking to, to live in such a way that we repay people good for evil because we've been paid the ultimate good in the face of our evil. The reality is, is we're all gonna sin against each other. When that happens, he says, see to it. No one repays evil for evil. When you're sinned against, don't sin in response. The question is, do you trust that God's able to deal with other people when they sin against you? Do you trust that? Do you trust that he's able to deal with the people when you admonish them and they don't repent, they don't turn? Do you trust that, that God's gonna repay all the evil done to you? Do you trust that, that God is just and he's the only just one and he's able to repay? Do you trust his sovereignty? And do you trust that he will give you the ability to love others like you've been loved? He says, he continues on there, he says, the kind of peace-filled relationships we have in the church is meant to be informed by always seeking to do good to one another and to everyone. Always seeking to do good. Instead of repaying evil for evil in the church and then also to everyone, he says, I want you to seek to do good. Always seek to do good. Instead of cursing when somebody else treats us evilly, it implies blessing. It's, one commentator said, it's being actively friendly in the face of hostility. It's more than just one time occasional thing too. It's living a life of love actively towards other people. Always seeking to do good. Wow, that's an incredible statement. Always? He says, yeah, always. Always seeking to do good to everyone? That's pretty all-encompassing. But you see, the gospel has so transformed us by, by giving us 
a new heart and a new, de- new desire to want to please God. And the way that we live in the church family and be at peace is that we seek to do good to others in the church family and to everyone else. We're meant to be a gospel light. All of these commands, though, that are given in this passage, they require relationships in the church family. There's many things you can do that the Bible commands do to, to pray, to read God's word. There's many ways that we can carry out parts of the Christian life on our own, but none of these commands can be done on our own because we're all meant to be a part of a church family. None of them can be lived alone. None of, the, none of these commands, they all require relationships in the church family. If, if you're going to respect and esteem your leaders, that re- implies that you are actually under those leaders, that you place yourself under those leaders. If, if you're going to admonish the unruly, that means you know them and you have a relationship with them. If you're going to encourage a faint-hearted, it implies a relationship that you know who's faint-hearted, who's struggling, that you know those who are weak. All of these things imply relationships. And in God's family, we need each other in order to grow up into him. Families are tricky, right? All of us need help in families. We can annoy and inconvenience each other. And, and Paul here, he's graciously giving instruction about how to relate to each other how to be at peace amongst the church family. Because the, the church family is, is a different kind of family. It's not like what we grew up in. It, it's a family where, where God is our father. You've been brought into God's family. Let that sink in for a minute. You didn't deserve, I didn't deserve to be brought into God's family. But he chose you and he's adopted you. Not because of anything you've done, good or bad, but he says, I want to choose you. You're going to be my daughter. You're going to be my son. And he's brought us into his family. What a privilege that is. And then he's given us the same standing as his own son, Jesus Christ. And he's given us all the benefits of the righteousness of Christ. And he's promised us the same inheritance that he gives to Jesus. And because of that, it's meant to have an effect on the way that we live. You know, maybe you, have, maybe you can't relate to this idea of a family because you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. I'd like to encourage you to, to respond and say, I want, I want to be a part of God's family. And, and that comes through repentance, confessing our sins, repenting and believing and trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins and, and new life. And for other hearers, maybe you've been discouraged because you've not experienced that kind of family in the church. Don't allow your past experiences to to negatively affect your faith in God and your obedience to God. And then maybe you're new to the church in general and you're saying, I don't don't know how to do this. And and so God lovingly helping us. God's been good to us. The church is is meant to be this gospel-shaped family where we, we look increasingly like Jesus. And that's meant to have an effect not only here, but on the world around us. And can you imagine if we're a church that's living like this, we're going to be a church that's, that's peaceful, increasingly so. We're going to be a church where it's filled with people who are not unruly, who are keeping a step with Jesus, who are filled with people who are encouraged and not faint-hearted, who are people who are, who are helped when they are weak, who experience good when they sin. Good from other people, I mean, by the way. Real faith in Jesus is seeking to live as faith-filled members of his family. 
And living like this kind of church, it's gonna produce a healthy, vibrant church that grows up together into Christ. And I can't wait to see how God's gonna use us to help us all grow up into him even more. Thanks for being this kind of church. Thanks for being this kind of family. Thank you for growing into this kind of family even more. May we, by God's, God's grace, together pursue this so that we can be a gospel light and a place of encouragement, help, and hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's very practical. God, I pray that we would not be like people who look in a mirror and go away unchanged, Lord. We would not be people who look and forget what we look like, that we would see through the light of your word how we really are doing in these areas, God. And I pray that in any of these areas where we need conviction, I pray that you would bring that gracious gift. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us to respond to you by your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that you would give us faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, may God bless.